Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. Hello, hello. I want to welcome you to A Minute with Coach Riggs. I'm at the stage in my life where my long-term memory is greater than my short-term memory, and recently Becky and I did something that uh, took me back to a certain year, something reminded me of that. Uh, a lot of times songs, or I'll see uh, someone I hadn't seen in a long time, or a picture or something will just kind of send me back to a certain year. You know, we have good years in our lives where we look back and think, well, you know, that was a really good year. I had a great time doing that, whatever I was doing at the time, or your children were born. And then you know, sometimes you have years you say, oh, that was a that was a really bad year. You know, business was bad, and we couldn't do this and couldn't do that, and, you know, the car broke down, whatever the deal was. This year was 1972. I was in high school at T.R. Miller from 1970 to 74, and that were four great years. I had a great time going to school there, and, you know, with all our friends and playing sports and doing all the things that you that you do. In 1972, I was 16 years old. The great thing about being 16 years old was you finally got your driver's license. And the great thing about getting your driver's license, obviously, was the fact that now you could actually take yourself certain places. You didn't have to beg your parents or somebody to take you or try to hitch a ride with, with somebody older. But you could actually take yourself. The other thing it meant is that, you know, we could actually go out on a date somewhere and take someone and go get them and pick them up and drive them. Before that, uh, you just basically couldn't couldn't hardly do that. You could double date with somebody or something, you know, who already had their driver's license. So the good thing, I, I was one of the first folks in my class because my birthday was in October to get my driver's license. So I'm kind of toting around friends and, and, and so forth and so on. But I did get to start dating. And so your life changes, you know, when you can do that and you kind of have your own your own wheels. And in 1972, what was I driving around? Well, I had a, what was our old family car at the time. And it was a 1960, I believe a 1965 Chevrolet Bel Air. And a 1965 Bel Air was kind of like an Impala. Those, those cars had these huge had this huge back seat in it i mean i could carry four or five freshmen in that back seat back there and you had bench seats on the front too so you could load a bunch of people in the, that vehicle i had my dad had uh, i think the thing was originally white my dad had taken it and painted it blue he liked doing stuff like that he had painted it blue uh, that thing must have got at least nine to ten miles to the gallon i'm telling you it had a had a big old 327 engine in it and uh, it would it would use up some gas so that's what I was driving around. You know, uh, I was listening to AM radio. Uh, that thing didn't have, you know, you folks don't know what power steering is because that's all you have these days. But in the old days, we had these big old steering wheels, and if it didn't have power steering, you got ready to make a turn to the left. You better bow up because it was going to take you several turns, that steering wheel, to get that thing to uh, where, it, where it would turn. My dad had taken me out one day and uh, was going to teach me to back a trailer. I jackknifed that thing. <laughs> it hit 
uh, it hit the side of the car over there and knocked two holes in it. So I've got this 1965 Chevrolet with two holes in the side of it, getting about nine miles to the gallon. It was full of uh, freshmen and sophomores and everybody else we could get in there every day. So that's what I was driving around in 1972. But I had a great time at school then, you know. And so when I started to do this, and I said, well, I'm going to do a little episode on 1972. I went back and pulled some of the yearbooks and just kind of looked for a minute about, about some things. And I had forgotten in those days, a lot of the girls at the school, they, they dressed in skirts. Now, they had started wearing pants. I think in the 60s, I don't even think girls could, could, could wear anything but, but dresses to school. But by the early 70s, uh, they were allowing them to, to, to wear pants. And But I had forgotten just how short the skirts were in those days. And I'm going to tell you the truth. We had some good-looking girls at T.R. Miller High School in the early 70s. And with the skirts they were wearing and the dresses they were wearing, it's a wonder the guys learned anything at all that we could keep our mind on, anything at all that had to do with school. I also look back at uh, what was going on in the world a little bit in 1972. You know, um, a lot of you have seen the reruns of the TV show MASH with Alan Alda. MASH uh, debuted on CBS in the fall of 1972. The big movie that year was The Godfather. Uh, with Al Pacino and Marlon Brando as the first of the Godfather movies. It was a, a big hit. But when we think about movies in 1972, I don't think about though that one. The one I think about is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, if you know anything about history, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid actually came out in 1969. Well, that's true. But the reason I correlate it with 1972 is it was the first movie that I went to when I got to go to the Eagle Drive-In in East Bruton with a date. I'm going to tell you, that was just pretty darn cool when you got your driver's license and you could actually take a girl to the drive-in movie. Uh, the drive-in movie was great, and, and there are a lot of stories about that that place over there, but you know, had their own concession stand, and you'd take that old gray speaker and roll your window up just a little bit, put that big old speaker on the side of the wind up there and you hope that the mosquitoes weren't going to eat you up over there uh we were all our cars had those bench seats in them and you, you know you you date kind of scoot up close to you a little bit there and everything so the the eagle drive-in you know going to the drive-in was just a pretty cool thing that we could do back there in the early 70s now you know george wallace was the governor of the state of alabama at the time and in may of 72 uh, arthur bremer uh shot him uh, in Maryland, uh, Wallace was running for president. He was governor at the time. And he ended up being paralyzed, would later run for another term of governor later in the 70s and, and, and win again. But that was obviously big news in the state of Alabama. And I, the other thing that happened on the national front is in June of 1972, we had the Watergate break-in. Now, uh, this summer was the 50th anniversary of that. There were some CNN documentaries and so forth own about the Watergate break-in. For those of you who are not history buffs and don't understand the significance of the Watergate uh, scandal in the early to mid-70s there is that it eventually led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. And the Watergate scandal was, uh, was simply a, a, a break-in where um, uh, some burglars broke into the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington at the Watergate hotels where the headquarters were and they were looking to steal some secrets, anything that they could find, because they were looking to sabotage the Democratic uh, nominee for president. So the whole thing is kind of just crazy, and it led to the resignation of the president of the United States. 
this past year, they came out with a brand new book about Watergate. Uh, I read the book, longest book I ever read, was 700 pages. But I read the book. The interesting thing about the look at it 50 years from now is they just have different takes on everything. There are some some documents being released and some things that we know about the Watergate controversy that nobody knew. And the interesting thing about, about part of this is that everybody who got caught up in the thing got prosecuted and lost their jobs, and some of them went to prison. But everybody had legal fees. And so what did you do in the 70s if you had all these legal fees? Because they weren't making much money as government you know, workers. Uh, what did you do? Uh, you wrote a book. So there was an incredible amount of people who wrote books about Watergate uh, so they could make enough money to pay their legal fees. So a lot of times, uh, if you're talking about a certain part of Watergate, you've got four and five and six different accounts of it that have been written over the years by some of the people that were involved in it. But anyway, it's a really good book. If you're interested in history and you want to do that, um, uh, check that book out, uh, the brand new book on, on Watergate that was just uh, published this year. If you if you really want to know about Watergate, you can uh, go back and look at the movie All the President's Men with Robert Redford and uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, they play Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who are the two Washington Post reporters who broke the whole Watergate thing. And so you can go back and uh, watch that uh, that movie, and that that will help you some. Also in the summer of 1972 was significant for me because I got my very first job, my real job. I'm talking about where they actually gave you a paycheck and paid you. And um, I took a job at the Medical Center Pharmacy. And my buddy Danny Cottrell at the time had gotten him a job down there, and they needed somebody to uh, deliver uh, medicine Danny couldn't do it at the time because he didn't have his driver's license yet, so he told them they ought to hire rigs. And so they, they called me and hired me, and the, the pharmacist down there at the time was a guy named Jack Wilburn. Talk about Mr. Jack some maybe in a, an episode some other time. He was a really interesting guy. But it was my first job, and I learned a lot of things about dealing with people um, and about responsibility. I also learned how to drive a stick shift because we had this little Datsun pickup truck that was not automatic transmission, and I had to learn to, to use a clutch and everything in a hurry. And I think I must have worked for minimum wage, which was about $1.65 an hour then. So there was, there was a lot of things. I'll tell you something else you'll learn if you become a delivery person in Bruton. You'll learn where all the roads are and where everybody lives. And I knew all kind of stuff. I didn't I didn't realize there were so many roads like in East Bruton. I learned all the little paths and dirt roads and everywhere because uh you know, I would spend the majority of my day uh delivering drugs all over the city of Bruton and East Bruton. So it was a it was a pretty interesting time. Uh, another thing that happened in, in the nineteen seventy two uh, era is that I became part of the M Club. Now the M Club was the athletic club at T.R. Miller. And so if you had uh, lettered, you could become part of the M Club. And so they would initiate you. In later years, they would call this hazing. But in the uh, early 70s, uh, it was just something that we did to get in the, the M Club. And so basically what uh, would happen is you would dress up like a female in, in skirt and all. They You would uh, be dropped off somewhere in, in town in Britain and you would walk to school in your female clothes. When you got to school, 
they would shave your head and cut all your hair off, and then they would harass you some during school. And this is the other members of the M Club, obviously, the older guys. They would harass you some during the day. And then that night at the basketball game, which was always a home game, uh, you would have to get out there and do cheers at halftime. Now, they did have a rule that said that if the temperature is below a certain thing, like it got below, I don't know, 40 degrees or something, you didn't have to walk to school. So thank goodness it was a cold day when we did it, and we didn't have to walk to school. But they did commence cutting our hair off in a hurry. Now, let me just say that by 1972-ish, um, hair had started to become a little bit more of a, a deal. Uh, I think we still had um, a rules about how long your hair could be and, and still be in school without getting thrown out. It, it had become a bigger deal. And as everybody was starting to grow their hair a little longer and starting to grow some sideburns, uh, long sideburns became a big thing in the 70s. And, and so it, things had just started changing along that way. And all the guys at Miller started growing their hair just a little bit just a little bit longer, whatever you could get away with at your house or they let you get away with at school. So the fact that they were cutting our hair off, you know, was kind of, could have been a big thing, but actually when it gets down to it, what I found out was there are two huge things that were great about having your hair cut off, okay? Number one, you know, when you're, you're 16, you got this big, thick head of hair got to wash that stuff, try to comb it and get it all straight every day to go to school so you didn't look kind of dorky when you showed up. And it took a while. It, it took a while to do all that. I lived approximately five minutes from T.R. Miller High School on Lindbrook Drive. And I found out that once my hair was cut off, I could sleep until about at least 7.40, get up, put my clothes on, brush my teeth, put my deodorant on, whatever else I was going to do. Go by the kitchen, get me something to eat, gather my stuff, get in the car, go to T.R. Miller High School, and get there about five minutes till eight. Man, I was sleeping later than I'd slept in a while. That was some good thing. You just didn't have to worry about your hair at all. All right. But here's the second one. This was pretty cool, too, for us, us guys in the, uh, in, in, the se- in the early 70s. When they cut our hair off and we were bald-headed, the girls loved to come up to you and rub your head. I can remember them rubbing my head. And, you know, you got, you got less hair up here, and I got on my legs. Uh, after it started growing out a little bit, they loved to just rub it, you know, just rub it. And they, they'd say, I, I need some good look. I'm going to rub your head. And I can remember teachers in the middle of class saying, do not rub their head. Do not rub their head. Leave them alone so they can do their work. So there were a couple of cool things about having your hair cut off anyway. Now that brings me up to um, uh, one other thing that happened on a social event uh, in 1972. The best of my knowledge, that was the year that the Dairy Queen opened in Bruton. And now if you don't know where the Dairy Queen was, it's today it's Mark's. But in those days it was a brand new building, you know, beautiful red and white. Dairy Queen, and it rivaled Bracken's Drive-In. Now, Bracken's Drive-In was always you know, number one, and uh, yeah, we had a Tasty Freeze, I think, also as well uh, down there where the old um, uh, Todd's Bait Shop was there on Highway 31. But Bracken's was probably number one in those days, and Bracken's. Um, the great thing about Bracken's is you go over there and park. 
and make your order. And those days they didn't have anywhere to eat inside. So you just go and you just like sit up on your car, your truck out there and wait on your food. Well, you know, other people were doing the same thing. They drive up, they would order, and they come over there and, and talk to you. And this was not only, you know, young folks, this was adults and everybody else. And so, you know, it wasn't uncommon to go by Brackens and, and there'd be like eight or ten people just standing out there sitting on their cars all talking about something. You know, it might be the game Friday night or whatever it was. But it was just kind of a little cool social place to be. Well, when they opened the um, the Dairy Queen, the advantage to the Dairy Queen is, number one, you could drive around the Dairy Queen and see inside. So they had a place you could see inside. If you had a date or whatever, and you'd go to the Dairy Queen, you'd go in there and eat ice cream and sit down inside, and, you know, all your buddies and all would come. We, there'd be a bunch of us inside there. Uh, you could hang around out in the parking lot, you know, and, and, and talk to everybody out there in the parking lot, get you something to drink or something inside and come outside and hang out there in the parking lot. And like I said, you could drive around the building, see who's inside, and it became really the, the social scene, on, particularly on this side of town. And so the, the Dairy Queen opening up was a big deal to us, uh, you know, when we were in high school at that time. Now, at T.R. Miller High School in 1972, we had hired – Larry Rampey as our new football coach. Coach Rampey came to us uh, from Walter Welburn High School where he had been a head track coach and assistant football coach. And we were excited about him. He was in his early 30s. He kind of wore these these glasses and he would adjust them all the time and he had this big, deep voice and and he put us to work, man. I, I'm in the off season uh, uh, lifting weights. We had this big weight machine, which was the craze of the 70s. You know, he would put a bunch of us working on that those machines, and we would rotate, and he'd put us out on a track and run us. And I just remember in the fall of 72 when the football season was about to start, the anticipation was we were going to have a good team because we had never worked that hard in the offseason. So we were all excited. And when it came down to it, we did have a good football season. We ended up 8-2. Um, uh, and two, which was the most games we won since the 69 state championship. And as the season went on, what really proved was we were really good on defense, uh, but we were kind of average on offense. And so we were trying to trying to run the ball and kind of run the clock and play good defense, keep the games close and, and win them down there at the end. But we loved playing for Coach Ramp. He was a fun guy. And we'll do some other episodes on the, some of the coaches at Miller later on. And certainly he's one that we will that we will talk about. It was kind of an up-and-down year from, from a lot of standpoints. Even though we had a good season, there were some ups and downs in it. When the season started, I didn't play the first game uh, because uh, I had gotten a quad bruise, which is a thigh bruise, early in practice. And it just nagged and nagged, and I never could you know, get to the point I could run full speed. I was one of the faster guys on the team, and so we kind of needed my speed a little bit, I guess. But you know, I just I couldn't run much. And so I didn't play the first game. So the second game, I think we were supposed to play Monroeville, and I suddenly got well that week. Let me tell you how I got well that week. Um, and I come home, and it's like Monday of the Monroeville game. And I come home, and I drive up in my driveway, and I had been limping around at practice again. And I come home, and my mother met me on the back porch of our house. That was unusual. And she looked at me and she says, I want to tell you something. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when your mother looked at you or your dad looked at you in the 70s and said, I want to tell you something, okay, they were not fixing to compliment you. She looked at me and she said, 
I went by and watched football practice for a couple of minutes today. And she says, I saw you limping around out there. And she said, it was embarrassing that you can't do any better than that. And she said, you need to get well and you need to get where you can run and do right. And if you're not going to do that, y'all just quit and walk off. And she turned around and slammed the door and walked back in the kitchen. Now, first of all, let me tell you that she told a lie about that because she didn't come down there and watch us practice football. She asked, she worked at the school. She asked the coaches what was going on with me. And they told him I was still limping around and everything. And so she just she just made all that up and blistered me. But I want to tell you something. It's, it's amazing. The next day when I went out to practice, my leg felt better than it had felt in a month. And suddenly I could run again. So we get ready and we go to play the Monroeville game. And so I'm playing a little bit. And they were playing me at wide receiver. And I really wasn't that happy about that because – we didn't throw it very much. I wasn't going to get the ball much. Uh, I really wanted to be a running back, but uh, Danny Moten was our was our tailback, and he was a senior, and he was bigger and stronger than I was, and I understood all that. So, anyway, I'm playing wide receiver and doing my part. They, they, they put me in the game specifically to run a fly route sometime down there in the third quarter. Bo Owens is quarterback, and I know Bo hates me for this even today. But um, we run the fly route, and Bo drops back there and throws me a ball, and he threw a perfect ball. I mean, they threw that thing high and deep, and I dropped it. The one he doubted was going to be a touchdown. I was 10 yards in front of everybody. I want to tell you, that's a bad feeling. And even as a coach later on, we'd have a guy drop a wide open ball, some ball like that. And I could kind of, you know, understand a little bit. I, I really never chewed guys out for dropping balls because – you know, I, I understood a little bit about dropping passes. But uh, the following week had another interesting – like I said, it was a year of highs and lows. The following week, I'm starting at wide receiver, and we go over to play Jackson. And so the game starts, and early in the game we punt, and I'm on the punt team. I'm the end on the punt team. And so we punt the ball, and I spread out like I'm supposed to to cover the flanks in the end and so forth. And in those days, they could block anyway they wanted to. You know, they could cut you or whatever. And I'm I'm going down the field, and this guy from Jackson's coming to block me, and I could see all of a sudden right at the last minute he was going to try to cut me. And so I kind of tried to jump out of the way. When I did, he did get part of my foot and basically turned me upside down. And when I came down, I stuck my hand out to brace my fall, and I ended up landing on my thumb, and I dislocated my thumb. Now, if you've had dislocated fingers, you know that can be kind of painful. The dislocated thumb is a different ball game. My thumb was headed at a 90-degree angle opposite of what it ought to be. So I get up, and I come to the sideline. Now, you know, we wanted to show we were tough, so I go over to right there. Coach Rampy's right there. And I go over, and I say, hey, Coach, I got a finger problem. Can you Can you put this back in? And I showed him. And I'm not sure what he said, but – it was something to the effect of, ooh, that don't look good. And he tried to wiggle it and get it back in. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, that was pretty painful. And and after just a short time, he says, you're going to need to go to the hospital and get that put back in. So he hollers, hey, we need to get him to the hospital. Whoever the policeman was with us start scurrying around and, and so forth and so on now. Let me explain to you one of the differences between the 70s and now. So a few minutes later, I'm in a vehicle, and I am headed to the hospital in Jackson, Alabama. And I'm going 
with our principal, who was Mr. Charles Pettis, and he was in his car, and he put me in his car, and he took me to the hospital. Okay, you're probably wondering, where were your parents? What you don't understand is in the 70s, our parents let the coaches handle everything. My, my parents didn't come to the field, didn't come to the fence, didn't come to the sideline. They stayed in the stands, and somebody told them they're fixing to take him to the hospital, and they said, okay. And they stayed and watched the rest of the game. Now, that's just the way we did it in the 70s. You didn't want your parents up at school. You didn't want your parents down there on the sideline. You didn't want them around. And my mother knew that because she worked at school. Uh, Mr. Pettis took me to the hospital at Jackson, Alabama. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, I, get to, <laughs> I get to the hospital. I go to the emergency room. And so they're calling a doctor. There's no doctor there. They're calling whoever's on call. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there in the emergency room. And they didn't take any of my stuff off because it was going to be hard to get it off, you know, without really cutting it off. And so I'm still sitting there with my shoulder pads and everything. So eventually the doctor comes, and it took him about nearly an hour to get there. And he shoots me up, and he says, it will take me about 15, 20 minutes maybe, We'll get that thing good and numb. I'll get. I'll see if I can get it back in for you. And so about 20 minutes later, he comes back in there. And I'm telling you the truth. He tried for like 25 minutes to get my thumb back in socket and never could do it. And never could do it. So finally, you know, it's getting kind of late. And I'm figuring the ball game is going to be over here in a few minutes. And I looked at him. And I said, hey, Doc, won't you do this? He said, won't you just... Give me something for pain and let me go on and I'll go back to Bruton. And when I get to Bruton, I'll get somebody to put it back in in Bruton. And he looked at me and he said, okay. And so that's what he did. Kind of wrapped it up, gave me something for the pain and um, sent me back. Mr. Pitts <laughs> sent me back and took me back to the game. And I got to watch the last, like the last minute of the game. And we won it right at the end of the game. So everybody's happy except me. I'm not particularly happy. I've got a thumb still going in the wrong direction. So I did ride home with my parents. I could go ahead and get back to the emergency room. And about midnight that night, or right after midnight, old Dr. Frank Philippi, our family physician, shows up at the emergency room and looks at me and says, heard we won the game. I said, yes, sir. He said, let me look at that. And he looked at it and he said, hmm, let me give you something for pain. And I'll get that thing back in. And he shot me up and about, Ten minutes later, he comes in there and he says, all right, I'm going to put it in. He said, you might feel a little something. So <laughs> he goes in. It took him about three or four minutes. He got it back in socket. Now, here's the problem. And he told me that night, doctor over there tried to put this in. I said, yeah, how long did he try? And I told him, he said, this thing's going to swell up, swell up big. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you. I said, okay, and he was right. My hand swelled up big, and it basically cost me like the next three games, you know, before it finally, you know, it got healed up enough that I could handle a ball and catch a ball. So um, by the time I got healed up, we were 6-0. and We're going to play Andalusia. They had lost one game, big game, and they ended up beating us like, I think it was like 21-7. to So we were real disappointed by that. I, I played wide receiver the whole night, didn't catch a pass, and we didn't throw many. The next week is homecoming. We're playing Evergreen. On Tuesday, they call me in the office, 
Coach Rampey looks at me and says, well, he says, we're kind of beat up at running back. We're going to move you to tailback and let you play tailback. And I, I, had I not been scared I was going to hurt my thumb again, I would have done cartwheels in the locker room because if you're going to play running back, you're going you're gonna to get the ball. So I, I, I didn't start the game there the best I remember, but it wasn't long before I got to go in the game. I remember ran in a touchdown from 25 or 30 yards and got to play most of the game there at running back. And I was just – I was so happy. I mean, it was just – thing, and I had gone from the – you know, the disappointment of getting injured and all that, that stuff and missing games to and, and I already had two injuries. I got to the point now that I was going to get to play, and so I was just really, really excited about that. So the following week, we were playing Niceville, and we had to travel to Niceville to play. So um, we had beat them the year before in Bruton, so they had a pretty good football team. We knew it would be a, it would be a, a, a tough game. Uh, but we had a good defense, and we felt like we had, certainly had a chance to win. But I was going to be the start running back. And uh, really, I had a really good game. In fact, um, midway through the third quarter, I had like 120 yards rushing. I'd already scored, and we were ahead in the game. And we're driving in to score again. Uh, I run the ball, gain four or five yards. I go to get up, and my leg don't work quite like it did when the play started. I had gotten hit on my hip and had a, had a really bad hip pointer. And if you've ever suffered from that, uh, basically you can't run. You can walk without pain a lot of times, but you can't run at all. And so it's a kind of a, a bad bruise and tear of the of, of the ligaments and all that are on the uh, the hip and the muscles. So basically, I was out, and uh, we ended up winning the game. But the following week was the Neil game. And I was so looking forward to to being able to play running back against Neil. And they tried all week to get me well, but there was no way that, um, you know, I did therapy all week. There's no way that I was going to get where I could run, so I didn't get to play in the Neil game. We ended up losing the game 22-6, to and the disappointment there was, number one, losing the deal. Number two, I didn't get to play, but had we beat Neil, we would have made the playoffs. And making the playoffs in the early 70s, there was only eight teams in the entire classification in, in that classification in the state to make the playoffs. We did it by a point system, and uh, the loss knocked us out. So it was a tremendously disappointing loss, and of course I was disappointed about, you know, about getting injured and, and, and so forth. So it was a, a very up-and-down year, but we had um, a great time with Coach Rampey, and we so much looked forward to the next year. He was going to play me at running back, and I was going to be the starting running back and at, at tailback and all that stuff. And then in February of 73, he was killed in a car accident. And so, um, you know, all that kind of came to a crashing end. We ended up hiring Coach Cotton as our head football coach, which made a lot of sense and so forth. But that was kind of the way that my, you know, my 1972 uh, ended. But I want to tell you something. You know, there were some other things that happened in football in 1972 that, you know, are just really historical uh, uh, in college football. Uh, Auburn beat Alabama 17-16 to in the famous punt, Bama punt game. It's the 50th anniversary of that, I'm sure, that you'll hear some things about this as the fall goes on. Uh, Alabama's ranked number two. Auburn had a really good team that had only lost one game, but uh, had a really good defense. Uh, but everybody expected Alabama to win the game, and Alabama's ahead 16-3 to uh, in the uh, fourth quarter. 
and uh, Auburn blocked two points, ran them both in for touchdowns, and won the game 17-16, to knocked Alabama kind of out of the national championship hunt and the whole deal. So um, uh, one of the most famous uh, Alabama-Auburn games of all time, that happened in Birmingham's Legion Field. Uh, in pro football, uh, 1972 was the year of the immaculate reception of between the um, uh, of the game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders, and uh, where Franco Harris caught the uh, uh, ball that caromed off of one of his own players and uh, one of the Oakland players, and uh, went up in the air and he snatched it out of the air and ran it for a touchdown to on the last play of the game to win the game uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and that was kind of the start of the Steelers dynasty of the 1970s. Was <clears throat> excuse me, really that play. And then 1972 was the year of the Miami Dolphins' perfect season, the only professional team in the NFL to ever go undefeated throughout the entire season and playoffs. They went 17-0. and The uh, Patriots came close, I think, in 07, but got beaten Super Bowl. But um, the Dolphins went 17-0 and became Super Bowl champions. The other thing that I liked about 1972 was the music. We had some great music in 1972. Now, I'm not saying that the lyrics were all that good, but we had some good tunes. Bill Withers came out with a song called Lean On Me, and uh, Don McLean had American Pie, which was the big number one hit of the year. Uh, Jackson Brown uh, with Dr. My Eyes, and, you know, uh, Mac Davis. Oh, Mac had a, a song called Baby, Baby, Don't Get Hooked On Me. Man, we were all singing that in 1972. And as I said, I had an AM radio, and we were, listening to that thing or listening on our eight-track tape players. One of the big stars of 1972 is what brought me to this thought to start with because the first week of September, Becky and I went to Nashville to hear a concert by a guy named A.J. Croce. His father was Jim Croce, and Jim Croce in 1972 came out with an album and the single, You Don't Mess Around With Jim. And it was one of the great songs of 1972, and everybody's singing this song. You don't hug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Long Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. And it was a great, great song. And A.J. Croce, in this concert, it was the 50th anniversary of the release of this album. In fact, the very day that the album was released by his father. He sang the entire album. Now, for you folks that know who Jim Croce is, um, I just want you to know, he, he sang the entire album, and he sounds so much like his father, and all the music sounds like his father. The whole thing just took me back to 1972, you know, because in the fall of 72, that's what we were all singing. He also had a, um, a song on that uh, album called uh, Operator, which everybody from the 70s will remember. And they play all the time now in all the 70 stations. Uh, if you if you have never heard of Jim Croce, you ought to go on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music sometime and uh, pull that stuff down and listen to some of his stuff. He was a guitar player. And, but the lyrics to his songs, it was like, you know, everything he's singing, it's like he, he, he sang this song about you. You know, he, he, he sang about some of the hard times he had been through and, losing girlfriends and, and so forth and so on. And it was just big stuff. And uh, Jim Croce was one of the great stars, but he was 
tragically killed in a plane crash in September of 1973, which was my senior football season. And we were just all devastated. He only did three albums, but we were just all devastated by the loss of uh, Jim Croce. But I got the uh, opportunity, as I said, to listen to his son who lives in Nashville and let him listen to uh, a lot of his music. But particularly, uh, he sang a bunch of his dad's own songs. So it kind of took us back uh, to that good old year of 1972, some 50 years ago. I want to thank you for uh, uh, just going back in time with me for a little bit. Uh, this has been A Minute with Coach Riggs. See you next time. Mm -hmm.